You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. So that's Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Okay, is this all good? It is, great, fantastic. Yeah, well, as uh, has already been mentioned, my name is Stu. It's great to be with you this evening, and I'm going to be talking to you um, from this passage uh, here in Mark. And we're going to be doing, in fact, a five-talk series through the Gospel of Mark, right up to our, what was formerly known as Base Camp. And I'm not sure if there's a great reveal come. There's, there may be a great reveal coming later on. <laughs> about that. So I'm just saying um, it's, a, it's a great book of the Bible to be looking at. Um, so of course, anyone can read in their free time. It's a ripping read. So I recommend you to do that over the course of this five talk series. Um, and also make sure that you're at uh, what was formerly known as base camp. Um, and we'll be introducing more detail later on tonight. Um, and then later on in the semester, we're going to be looking at the book of Romans from chapter five through to chapter eight. So that's also um, a really exciting thing to be getting into. Um, and you, again, can, it would do you great good to read ahead and to look at Romans yourself in preparation for those, uh, that, that series and both of these series. Anyway, here we are in the Gospel of Mark. And the question this evening that is before us is, um, what kind of king? What kind of king? But by way of introducing and setting up that question, like why that's an important question, and it is a really important question, what kind of king do we have uh, in the pages of the gospel? To set it up and to show its relevance, I need to first ask the question, what is the good news? What's the good news of the Bible? So I'm going to do a little exercise here. I want people on this side, on this side, uh, to... Speak to the person next to you and just discuss uh, what is uh, the good news of the Bible. If you ha- if you had to summarise, maybe in a word or two, maximum a sentence, what is the good news of the Bible? Over this side, 
I would like you to answer the question, what kind of proclamation could you make on campus that would universally be received as good news? If you're going to declare good news on the campus at Monash, right, what would you have to declare for everyone to go, that's really good news, I can see it, that's really fantastic, awesome news. So got your question? You've got your question? And in the middle, I want one of you in your head to have one of those questions in mind and just let the person next to you answer whichever one of those questions they want and see what happens. It might be fun. You're thinking, just pretend you've asked them. I'm asking you a mystery question. I can't tell you what it is. It's either what is the good news or what would be good news on the campus. And you've got to answer. And uh, you've got to be thinking to yourself, potentially, like, you know, you might in your head ask, what is the good news? And they might answer, um, eradication of all poverty. And you're going, mm, interesting. Is that really right? Okay, so go for it. See how you go. <laughs> okay, I think we can wrap it up. That's the vibe I'm getting. So let's go see how we, see how we went. Oh, you're shushing, not drum rolling. Okay, good, okay. <laughs> Completely not communicating here with the audience. This is really bad. Okay, so what did you come up with uh, for what's the good news of the Bible? Anyone? Is anyone brave enough just to say what you reckon it is in summary statement? One or two words, what's the good news of the Bible? Saved. That we're saved. Good. Anything else? Any advances on? Get to spend eternity with God. It's getting longer. Have you got like a longer one? <laughs> well, in the beginning, so, yeah. Yeah, more? Jesus is king. He's a good king. God has come near and made himself available. Yep. Reconciliation with God. Lots of things that are interrelated, but are slightly different. Interesting. Good. Thank you. What about over here? What would you need to shout out from the rooftop at Monash for people to go, that's good news? Yes, for sure. <laughs> there are lots of things that students would love. That's right. Free education. Free education. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit grown up, Karen, but I think, you know, <laughs> that's what mum and dad would say, but yes. <laughs> Free parking. Yeah. Good news. Not what I expected from you guys, but it's true. Everyone would celebrate and say that is good news. <laughs> what an... Anything else? This is for you guys. Okay. Okay. Yep. Good. Um, we'll come back to you guys. No wrong answers, but I want to add something. Okay, good. Um, and what about in the middle? Was that just a hot mess? It was. Okay. Forget about you guys. Oh, my gosh. These guys can't get it together, so disorganised. Okay, so um, if, if, you were, if, if I were to proclaim something on campus that would be certain as universally good news, right, I would expect it would have to be something like eradication of poverty. I, I've, I've worked out a way to completely, for sure, get rid of poverty. Or I've worked out a way, some sort of social structure system, social ordering, that ensures equality. Uh, there'll be no more inequity in this society. Uh, if I proclaim that I've worked out how to do it and to maintain our autonomy at the same time as make sure no one's left behind, I think people would say that's actually really good news. If I proclaimed on campus I've worked out how to reverse global warming and today 
and not need to use one more ounce kg of fossil fuels, I think people on campus would say, that's, that's, that's amazing news. If I said, I've worked out how to cure cancer. So there's all these things, right, that, that, that you, could, you could proclaim on campus and people would go, that, everyone would go, that is good news. Now, where these two ideas come together is that Jerusalem, uh, God followers, Jews, the nation of Israel in the first century, they all together knew what someone would have to proclaim for every single one of them living in Israel to say, Amen. That's amazing. That is good news. And here is what it is. Here is what they would need to hear that would be universally received as that is definitely fantastic, amazing news. Every single Jew would say, I'm into this. And here it is. Here comes great King David's greater son. The Messiah is here. The King is here. The King is here. That's the one thing every Jew wanted to hear. That's the one thing, if you said it, every single Jew would agree that is the most amazing news you could possibly hear. And why? Well, because the Old Testament promises that one day God will give his people this Messiah, that means anointed one, right? In Greek, Christ will give them his people this Christ, this Messiah, this king. And this king will get rid of all corruption. That was the promise that was given to them in the Old Testament of the Bible. God's people, the Jews, Israel. I'm going to give you a king and that king will get rid of every single aspect of corruption in this world. He'll get rid of it. And he'll be such a wonderful, glorious king that all the nations of the world will come and willingly live under the rule of this king. He'll be so good, so much better than any other king that has ever lived that all the nations of the world, the way they're described in the Old Testament, is that they will stream into Jerusalem from every part of the globe there in Israel. This is the good news that they were hanging out for. And if anyone steps up as some sort of corrupt oppressor, this king will take care of him in an instant, decisively. He will smack him down before he even gets a chance to put his little finger on anything or anyone. That's the king in the Old Testament that was promised, right? So that's, that's who the Jews are waiting for, this great king who will restore Israel, who right now, in the first century, right, are under Roman rule. Okay, Under Roman rule, they're waiting for this king to not just restore them and get rid of their oppressors, but to get rid of global oppression, all sorts of corruption and evil in the world. And so that's why it says here in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the beginning of the good news about what? The beginning of the good news about what is the good news about? The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He's saying very clearly that this is the good news. Jesus is the King. That's the great news that he wants to proclaim here in the Gospel of Mark. 
And the question, of course, that raises is, what sort of king is he? What sort of king is he? Because if he is going to bring about this radical transformation in this world, both to Jerusalem, Israel and the rest of the world, he'll have to be like no other king that we've ever seen, right? And a hairier question is, if he actually, if Jesus really is the king that the Gospel of Mark is saying he is and that the Old Testament anticipates, well, right now, this looks nothing like what was promised in the Old Testament. So if he is that king, how is he that king? What type of king are we looking at? How does he operate? What is he doing? That he is universally proclaimed as the good news, according to Mark. Well, the first thing I want to say, but there's just two points I want to make about this king. The first thing about this king, who is this king, what kind of king is, he is free of corruption to free from corruption. That's the kind of king he is. He is completely free of corruption in order to free from corruption. Listen to these few verses here uh, in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now, you might be very familiar with the Bible, so that might mean something to you, that little section of Scripture. On the other hand, you may not even be a Christian at all, and here just you've come along, somehow you connected to someone, you thought you'd just come and check it out. Or you may be a Christian, but be very unfamiliar with the Old Testament and even the New Testament. And so for some of you in this room tonight, that might sound like complete gobbledygook. And it would sound like complete gobbledygook because it's, it's heavily referencing the Old Testament as it introduces this king. And it's talking about something that's quite esoteric, baptism. But there are three things there that it's good for us to try and get a bit of a handle on to understand what kind of king we have in Jesus Christ. Three things, I'll whiz through them. The first thing is that he is declared by God himself. Just imagine that. He's baptised, right? And out of thin air comes this voice. It's recorded here by eyewitnesses, so I assume it's pretty loud. Just imagine this booming voice coming out of thin air. And, and mind you, at this stage, it's, it's not clear. In fact, it seems the case that no one knew that this so-called king, this so uh, called Messiah, was any different to a whole bunch of people lining up to be baptised. So just imagine all these people lining up to be baptised in the river. In they go, dunk, 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 dunk. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. But yeah, uh, yeah, but is, yes, would they say that? Yes, so would you, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Uh, Yahweh, God. Uh, they're doing this, and then one comes down, dunk, up he pops, and then a voice comes from heaven. You are my son. You are my son. I don't know. I don't know how God speaks. <laughs> Whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Not that? Yeah. <laughs> Is it how God was in your dreams? Yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, so, so here's this booming 
this booming voice, and it sounds, it doesn't, it sounds like on the face of it, you're saying, um, you know, you're God. A voice from heaven, obviously God, saying, you are my son. But you know what that is actually there? That's a quote. That's a quote that would have been well known to all Jews because all they had was the Old Testament. They loved the Old Testament and they loved their kings and there was this special psalm that they would always sing when a king was installed. And this is a line from the song they would sing when a king was installed in Jerusalem. And a part of the song they would sing to the king being installed, being coronated, was this. You are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased. You see, the kings of Israel were called sons of God because they represented God. And here God, God himself, is putting his seal of approval on this person who is in the queue to be baptized. And as he pops out, up, out the other side, God is saying, hey, this one, this one here, this normal plebeian kind of guy that's just in the line, he... He's the Messiah. He's the Son. I am well pleased with Him. So it's the first big thing. He is declared by God to be the, the great King David's greatest Son who's going to fix up everything in Jerusalem and the world. Second thing, it says here, though, oddly, right, that He's baptized. So why is this great King baptized? Ba- baptism is for the corrupt. Baptism is symbolic of being cleansed unto renewal. And so John the Baptist says, in preparation of the great coming king, repent and be baptized. In other words, recognize that you're corrupt. A great new kingdom is coming that will be free of corruption. Ready yourself by acknowledging you're corrupt and prepare yourself to be renewed, remade. And here, Jesus is joining the queue. He, he's identifying him. And just let this sit with you for a moment. Jesus is identifying as a corrupt one. He's identifying as someone who has rejected the rule of God. That's the definition of the uh, if, if you want a biblical view on corruption, what is it at heart? It's the rejection of the rule of the God who made us. That's what it is. It's failing to trust in the rule of the God who made us. He's identifying as one of those people, as, as the Bible calls it, a sinner. Jesus is saying, I'm one of you, side by side. Yet, so that's the second thing, okay, to, to bed down. We've got he's made king by God. He's, he's declared king by God. He's been baptized, identifying as a corrupt one. But then look what else it says here. It says that he was tested in the wilderness for 40, what did it say, 40 days. He was taken out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. So this was God's plan to test him. And it says there that he was tempted by Satan himself. Again, it's picking up this big idea in the Old Testament. I won't bore you with all the details, but basically it's a very, very famous story in the Old Testament, right? Where God's people are tested in the wilderness. And what happens? They they, they fail. They fail. And what's so significant about the story of their failure is that they've given every opportunity of all the people on the world, right? They are the one group of people who've got a tailwind in terms of being properly, truly, thoroughly good. Do you want to be a person who is really, truly good? 
full of love, full of integrity? Well, your best opportunity ever was as one of God's people just before they were tested in the wilderness. They'd been given every reassurance that God was with them. They'd been given every tool in the toolkit to be properly, truly, thoroughly good, and they failed. And the point there is that humanity, humanity's corrupt. And, that, and yet Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and the other Gospels testify, and Mark just alludes to it because... Back then when he wrote it, everyone knew what had happened with the story. But the other Gospels testify that he remained faithful to God. So let's pull this together. He identifies as a corrupt one, but he's demonstrated as being thoroughly, properly good, free of any corruption whatsoever. And he's also declared to be the king that was promised in the Old Testament by, the, by God himself. So how does this frame our understanding of this great king? What kind of king is he? Well, he's a king, isn't he? Obviously, who's coming to deal with corruption. But more than that, and this will dovetail with the next point, more than that, he's coming to deal with corruption not by smashing the corrupt, but by saving them. By reaching down, getting alongside them, saying, I am one of you, come with me. And I will heal your corruption. I will fix you. What kind of king? He's that kind of king. A king who is free of corruption to free from corruption. What kind of king is he? Next point here. He's a revolutionary king. Of course he's a revolutionary king. Um, because he promises such a cosmic change here in the universe that he has to be revolutionary. But I want to point out something particular here. And it goes right back to the start. God has come good on his promises in the Old Testament. But God does it in his son in a revolutionary way, a way that no one expected, in kind of a, a way that subverts all our normal ways of working because of the mission he's on. And we'll flesh this out now. He's a revolutionary king. In the second century BC, there was another revolutionary leader called Judas Maccabee. Um, and they even have named the Jewish celebration Hanukkah after him, which I think is an eight-day festival. And I think Hanukkah means dedication. Any Jews here that can back me up on that one or correct me? Fantastic. I can say whatever I want. This is awesome. That's really what I wanted to know because the rest of the story is all about Jewish stuff and I wanted to make sure I can make mistakes. So, so here is Judas Maccabee. Here's Judas Maccabee, 2nd century BC. Um, and at that time, ever since the exile, so this is all Old Testament stuff, you know, the, the Jewish people were captured and basically for about 500 years, okay, until the coming of Jesus and then sometime after even, they were under... Uh, foreign occupation, foreign rule. Um, and they desperately wanted to be free from this. A particularly uh, vicious period came under the Seleucid Empire and one of their leaders came in and tried to Hellenize the Jewish way of worship. They let, they let the Jewish people live as Jews. They let the Israelites be their own nation. But they did horrible things. They came and set up Greek gods in the Jewish temple 
which is just appalling to a Jewish person who wants to worship the one true living God. And get this, they tried to make their priest eat pork, eat pig, which is a, an unclean food, must not be touched, let alone eaten, by Jewish people. And they tried to force the priest to eat pork in this act of humiliation and saying, we're squashing you and forcing you to submit to our rule, the Seleucid Empire. There was this one priest, Judas Maccabee, a priest. Just imagine a priest like this today. You don't think of this when you think of priests. But he took up the sword. He took the club. He gathered an army. And he fought against the Seleucid Empire. A priest did this. Priests don't do this, right? They sort of hang around sipping, sipping tea and just being super, super nice, right? They sort of hang out in the, in the religious centre and just sort of counsel people about something. I don't, you know, I don't know what they do. So this, this priest, he picked up a sword, picked up a gun, and he fought back. And he succeeded. He pushed back the Seleucid Empire to the, to, to the point where they'd completely restored the Jewish way of worship. He'd reclaimed the temple even while these great superpowers all around them were constantly trying to rule over them, right? And all of the Israelites went, you are a hero. That's just a, a tiny taste of what great King David's greatest son is going to be like when he comes, right? He showed him, Judas Maccabee, and to this day, they celebrate it. Jews all around the world celebrate Hanukkah, celebrating him and what he did, the, the victory he won for the Jewish people with sword and fist and club. Well, when Jesus comes as great King David's greatest son, what kind of army does he gather around him? Who does he get? Who does he call up to the front line to fight the fight? Look here, and in that, just imagine, this is what everyone's thinking. Just imagine that context and now what Jesus says. It sounds hilarious what he says. Look what he says. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. For they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. What? Great King David's greatest son, come to gather his army. He's looking around. Who will I call you? I'm going to make you a fisher of men. What are you even talking about? It makes no sense. And this on the back of him just declaring that the kingdom is coming. It's near. Get ready for the fight. Look here. In chapter 14, after John was put in prison, so that was the one who declared Jesus is coming. He's now put in, in prison. Surely that will prod the bear. Surely that will provoke the fight. Yes, how does Jesus respond? He says, Jesus went into Galilee after John was put into prison, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Get ready for battle. You, fishermen, come follow me. I'm going to make you a fish of men. What kind of war is he fighting? And here's the really big point that I pretty much want to land on and finish with tonight. What kind of war is he fighting? Well, here's the thing. If Jesus came to properly destroy corruption, and he has, if he came to get rid of every form of inequality and oppression that exists in this world, and he has, if he came to get rid of every implication of sin in this world and he has global warming earthquakes war and rumors of uh, rumors of war 
dissension, mistrust, thievery, murder. If Jesus came to deal with all of that kind of stuff, and he has, if he came to crush that corruption, this is my question to you, who would be left? Who would be left? Would you? Would Putin be destroyed, but you would be left standing? If he was to get rid of all corruption? Of course not. And that's why he calls fishermen and says, I'm going to make you fisher of men. It's a metaphor for a holistic capturing of men and women. Jesus wants to woo the wicked. He has not come, first and foremost, to crush the corrupt. It's coming. It's coming. But if he came firstly to crush the corrupt, it would just be Jesus. That would be it. What kind of kingdom is that? No, they've come to woo the wicked. And they've come to comprehensively pick people up from their wickedness and plonk them down into the kingdom of the son God loves. That's the way it's described in Colossians. I love that phrase. We're plucked up from the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of the son he loves. This is the good news. And this is the war that Jesus has undertaken and is committed to. And these are the followers he calls. Come follow me and become fishers of men and women. Woo the wicked, he says, before it's too late. And so that's why all those Old Testament promises are dead right. That will all happen one day to this earth. This, all, this earth will be completely restored to its former glory and even more before any corruption was in the world. That will happen. But first of all, woo the wicked. Call people to repent and be baptised. Call people to turn away from a life where you just don't trust God to a life where you trust God. That's it. That's the mission. So that's the kind of king we, king we have, right? A revolutionary king. A king who saves us from corruption. And I guess the question to end with tonight is, what kind of follower will you be? That's our king. What kind of follower will you be? Will you commit your lives to this proclamation of good news which trumps all other possible proclamations? This news, Jesus is king, is properly, truly, sincerely better than I've, I've solved global warming. It's better than I've found the cure to cancer. It's much, much better than I've worked out a way to get rid of all inequality. It's even better than free food. It's huge, I know. It's, it's even better than free food.
Christ is king. And here's here's the kicker. He will save you from your corruption. Nothing else can do that, my friends. This is the best news anyone could ever proclaim anywhere for all time. And are you going to be a follower who's committed to wooing the wicked unto that end? And let me finish with a Don Carson quote because it makes any talk end well. So here we go. Here's a quote from Don Carson. What kind of follower are you? How are you going to woo the wicked? How are you going to woo the wicked, right? Well, it's by in this season, while Jesus is trying, seeking to woo the wicked through his word and through his followers, it's through this. Don Carson writes, Genuine disciples, genuine followers display their faith when they so broadly recognize Jesus, they trust him in all circumstances. That's your base level job here as a Christian student on campus. Is to so broadly recognize Jesus. He holds everything together. He is the great all-conquering king. That in everything you do in life, You want to work out how to submit it to his lordship and to live in a way that honours him in everything you do. That's how you you woo the wicked. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.